Good morning. It's good to be with you. Been preaching to myself and here on these video recordings for the last six months, and I'm pretty sure that I've never ever preached to a live studio audience before. So <laughs> you're the first. And greetings to all of you Zoomers out there. It's good to be with you as well. See if I still remember how to do this live. And see if I can make my remote work. What does it mean to be a peace church? For me, that question has long been part of my, a foundational part of my identity. I spent kindergarten through grade 12 at Shalom Christian Academy. Shalom was a private Christian school, although we occasionally had to explain to the un uninformed that we were not Jewish and didn't speak any Hebrew beyond that one word. Shalom, as you may know, is the Hebrew word for peace. Its actual usage and definition are much broader, and I'll get to that later. My school was called Shalom because it was founded by the three historic peace churches in my region of the states. The Brethren in Christ, and that was my church, the Church of the Brethren, and the Mennonites. That was actually a pretty diverse group and plenty of sisters as well as the Brethren. Um, it was a diverse group culturally and theologically, but that emphasis on the way of Jesus as the way of peace brought us together. And that branding has stayed with me. I was a Shalom kid, part of the Peace Church tradition. Those are my people, and peace has always been inseparable from my understanding of Christianity. So it's not an accident that I found my way to a home in Mennonite churches wherever I've gone in my adult life. We are people of God's peace, as we sang. Those words go all the way back to Menno Simons in 1552. And in my mind and heart and experience, that's what church is. Now, what does that actually mean to be a peace church? That's the driving question of the sermons that I have planned for the next couple of months. As I often do, I see this as a very complicated question. I know that some of you have put a lot of thought into this. Some of you have degrees in peace theology, peace and conflict studies, restorative justice. Many of you live out the work of peace. That's what most Mennonite organizations are all about. Last week in our worship, we celebrated 100 years of the Mennonite Central Committee doing exactly this work. And I find that to be a very compelling model of what a peace church is all about. Some of us find the peace church theology and practice quite inspiring and attractive. Others of us don't think about it very much and find other things more important about faith and church. And there are those of us who dislike or disagree with the ideals of peace church theology. We will talk about some of the ways that Mennonites have been and continue to be hypocritical in our talking and walking in the way of peace. Some of us struggle with that idealism and the self-righteousness that often comes with it. Some of us have different ways of seeing the world and its problems. And that's okay. That skepticism is warranted. And even the Mennonite tradition has long made space for different ways of thinking about and living out these things. Finally, there are those of us who have been around long enough that we're just comfortable with the language and ideology of peace. It is part of the branding, part of how we're used to seeing ourselves. It feels good to be people of peace. I probably identify most with that group of comfortable peace-ish people. 
which probably means trouble if you find yourself in that group as well, because as usual, I'm mostly up here preaching to myself while the rest of you are listening in, even though you're actually here and listening in. Comfortable peace? Come on, Heikman, is that even a thing? I intend for this sermon series to make me less comfortable, and perhaps some of you will join me in that as well. But wherever you're coming from, it's important to name that we're not all coming to this topic from the same place. Because I know from experience that we're not all going to agree on what God's peace means or what role you and I and the church have to play in it. That's okay. Wherever you land on this topic, you're in good company. Notice how hard I'm working to avoid any conflicts in my sermons about peace. Because we're not all coming to this peace church from the same place, I'm going to start with the basics and share how my understanding has grown and developed. At Shalom Christian Academy, what I learned was mostly a list of the things that people of peace did not do. The big one was no war. We learned that thou shalt not kill and love your enemies were highlight verses in the Bible. We heard the stories of the martyr's mirror of Christians throughout history who were willing to die for their faith but refused to fight or kill for it. We heard testimonies of people who were conscientious objectors to military service and worked in alternative service programs when their numbers came up in the army draft. When I turned 18, I was legally required to register with the US Selective Service Agency, and I felt the weight of all that history whenever I wrote conscientious objector across the registration card. I learned lots of reasons for why we refused to participate in war. I'd say the core of it came down to a choice of citizenship. War demands the total allegiance of those who participate in it. But as Christians, we were called to seek first the kingdom of God. Our core allegiance was to God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20. The follow-up to no war was no killing, which in my childhood was expressed most clearly as a prohibition on guns. Now, I grew up in prime Pennsylvania deer hunting country, so this was a complicated one. But in my family, there were no guns, not for hunting or sport shooting, not even for killing the groundhogs that, attacked, that wrecked our fields and our tractors. Guns took lives, and that was for God alone to decide. When we were pro-life, for my people anyway, that wasn't just about abortion, that was about the sanctity of all human life. And owning a gun, even for self-defense, was to risk taking on a role that was meant for God alone. Following that track, a little lower down on the priority list was no violence, by which we meant no fighting. I've never been in a physical fight, I've never punched anyone other than my brother, and he won those battles. I've always lived a rather sheltered existence, and I'm pretty good at avoiding volatile situations. And I'd like to think that my size would make most people think twice about starting something with me. It's quite convenient for me to not fight people. And all the hypothetical discussions about, well, what would you do if someone attacked someone that you love? Well, those have remained hypothetical for me. So my nonviolence is largely situational, but some of it does have to do with a deeply ingrained resolve to turn the other cheek. Non-resistance was the word I was taught for it. 
the ideal that it is better to accept harm than to do harm, even in self-defense. That was the way of Jesus, I was taught. Jesus allowed himself to be beaten and killed on a cross rather than use his limitless power to fight back. And he meant for his followers to follow that example. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12. Here again, the understanding that I was raised with is that justice and protection, those are in God's department. We humans are meant to show love and kindness and mercy and grace in every situation, even when our safety is threatened. And we trust that God will take care of us to work things out in the big picture. The final no on the list was no conflict. And that one comes with a question mark because of course there was conflict in my school and church and family community, plenty of it. But 95% of conflict happened behind closed doors. In the recollections of my childhood, when people had a disagreement, well, they left. They were taken out of the classroom. They went to private meetings. They left the church by choice or otherwise. And the rest of us carried on like there was nothing going on. When they came back, if they came back, they didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it. Of course, that's just a childhood recollection, but there was and is definitely a sense that being a peace church means the suppression of conflict in public perception, if not in reality. And so many of us do practice non-resistance in unhealthy ways, tolerating abuse, avoiding conflict, failing to pr protect vulnerable people, choosing passive-aggressive patterns over good communication. Not in this church, of course, but I've heard that other people struggle with those things. So that was Peace Church 101 at Shalom Christian Academy. I was a kid and then an idealistic youth thinking about faith and peace, and that's how I heard it. That's how it worked for me. Now I'm an adult thinking about faith and peace in highly mature and sophisticated ways. Or not. Things are more complicated. For one thing, there are a lot of absolutes in that list of things that people of peace should abstain from. It's really complicated to live out those absolutes with integrity in a world that is filled with connections and human limitations. How legitimate is it to live my privileged existence in Canada while claiming to not participate in war and violence? From my taxes to my investments to my personal safety and security, there is a great deal of violence threatened and actually done in my name, on my behalf, to my benefit. There's no getting around that. How can we be people of peace when we are very much part of a society that embraces violence? Second, there's a strong link between how I was taught to understand peace and how I was taught to understand God. As my understanding of God has developed and grown, so too my understanding of peace needs to grow and develop. To greatly oversimplify it, I used to believe that war and self-defense were not necessary because, as I said, protection was God's department. And I believed that violence for punishment and retribution was not up to, not up to humans because that was what God did. God would bring judgment and justice. I was taught that God, was, God is in control, and if God is in control, then it's a lot easier to turn the other cheek because I had that assurance that God's going to take care of me. God's going to make it all work out in the end. God will protect the innocent and give the bad guys what they deserve. 
But I'm not so sure now that that's how God works. I'm not sure that God is in control in that way. What if I'm learning and choosing to focus less on God's power to control things and more on God's sustaining, redeeming presence with us in all things? What if I no longer believe that God is actually in the business of protection and judgment, but rather concerned with healing and compassion in all things, all the time? I don't have time to explore that fully today, but suffice it to say that if that's how I'm learning to see God, then that must have significant impacts on my understanding of peace as well. Theology has to have practical implications if it's gonna mean anything. Finally, you will have noticed that the no war, no violence approach to peace is a very negative question, very negative approach. It says quite clearly what we're against, but it leaves unanswered the question, what are we for? And having that negative aspect as a primary part of our religious identity, Mennonites practice nonviolence, that has led us to invest heavily in convincing ourselves that we are actually not violent. That violence exists outside of us as individuals and families and communities. But the truth is carrying these ideals of no war, no killing, no fighting, that hasn't actually solved the violence issue among us. Our communities have suffered deeply from unhealthy patterns of conflict, from domineering leaders, from physical, sexual, emotional, and spiritual abuse, and even more from hiding and justifying those abuses. Abstaining from the most overt forms of violence has not actually kept our hands clean. Violence is more insidious than that. We bring it with us, so avoiding conflict in the name of peace hasn't worked isn't working, not for everyone. So then, given all that background, recognizing the complications and that we're failing to live up to our ideals, what does it mean to be a peace church? That's gonna take another four or five sermons to work out at minimum. But for today, I'll start and end back where I began, with Shalom. As I said, shalom means peace, but it also means much more. Some of you know the song, harmony, unity, wholeness and justice, peace and salvation, all are shalom. Shalom is about right relationships, nothing missing, nothing broken. Probably the most straightforward definition is that shalom means flourishing. As John Stackhouse says, shalom is this literally global idea where everything is what it can be. Everything lives up to its potential, and all of those relationships are flourishing. So there's human flourishing, there's communities flourishing, systems flourishing, nature flourishing. That's the dream. But how do we get there from here? We read earlier the vision of John the Apostle from the book of the Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of life-giving water, clear as crystal, which issued from the throne of God and of the Lamb and flowed down the middle of the streets. On either side of the river grew the trees of life, which produced fruit 12 times a year, once each month. Their leaves serve as medicine to heal the nations. I know many of us have been trained to think about Revelation as a vision of the end of the story, the eternal unchanging glory, the great happily ever after. But this vision has a, a calendar in it. It has a sense of ongoing time, 
trees that produce fruit in a continual cycle of renewal and harvest. This is a river city. We live in Saskatoon. I don't have to tell you that a river is flowing, moving, changing. It's not static. A river has a life of its own. Then there's that last line about the trees. Their leaves serve as medicine to heal the nations. If all the struggles are over, there would be no need for medicine. If the hurting is over, where's the need for healing? This is a vision not of a world without hurt or conflict, but a world where conflict is not the end, where need is met with medicine, where hurt is brought to a place of healing. That's the word that I keep coming back to, healing. Clearly, we don't live in shalom. To get there, it's going to take healing. Healing within us, healing among us, healing beyond us. Some of you have noticed that code word in the vision, the note that the tree produces 12 different kinds of fruit. 12 is the code word for the people of God. The tree of life, we are part of that on both sides of the river. And the life of the tree becomes medicine for the healing of the nations. That's the summary of the biblical vision for our world and our part in it. We are part of God's healing strategy to bring out the flourishing of the whole cosmos. I'm going to talk more about, more in the coming weeks, about the biblical vision of shalom. But for today, I want to leave you with the question, how are you a part of the healing of the world? Some of us are professional healers, fixers, nourishers, and growers by vocation. How is your work part of God's work of shalom? Some of us are community builders and conflict resolvers in our various circles, large and small. Do you see those transformations in the context of God's healing? And some of us are engaged in the hard work of healing our own wounded selves. This too is the work of Shalom, as my individual flourishing is connected to yours and to the whole of everything. So that's my take on what it means to be a peace church. I look forward to learning and growing as we walk on this path together this fall. May grace and peace be yours in abundance, in the awareness of God and in the way of Jesus. Amen. And I suppose I should end these sermons with peace out.